Thank you for listening to this Table Church Sermon Podcast. Table Church exists to invite people to the way of Jesus. We do that by living on our four core values, pursue God, create belonging, do justice, and make disciples. So join us for four weeks as we focus on the things that we are called to. In this series, we are learning what these core values mean to us and refocusing ourselves on what matters most. As always, if you need anything at all, please check us out at tablechurchdsm.org, or you can reach out at hello at tablechurchdsm.org. God bless, and thank you for listening. Good morning, church. My name is Cheryl Kozakowski. I moved here from Sioux Falls to help found this church several years ago. And uh, serving Table Church has brought a lot of joy to me and uh, fulfillment and purpose in my life. And although not everybody feels comfortable standing on stage reading scripture, there are lots of ways you can serve here at Table Church. Um, I help out in the nursery and in the praise band. Um, On Tuesdays, I am part of the Rise Up ministry, helping disadvantaged children learn to read and do math things that aren't particularly easy for me, but I tried my best. And on Friday, I have seniors in my home at a table group, and we watch The Chosen, and we discuss the life of Jesus. And those things are all very meaningful to me. And this morning, we're going to read from the book of Daniel, chapter 1, verses 3 through 7. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. Thank you, Cheryl. Good morning, everyone, and welcome. It's good to see you here today. Thanks for coming. I want to let you know real quick that next week is the day that we've been talking about for a while now. That's the day that construction begins here at the Playhouse. Uh, They've been raising money. You've probably seen the signs. They're going to do a, a big renovation. This room right here isn't going to be touched, but just about everything else in the building is going to be touched. Uh, And so it is going to, we're going to notice it, uh, I promise. I don't know what it's going to look like exactly next week, but they're doing it in phases, so chances are things will continue to build or change and transform over the next several months. But I do know that uh, next week, the schedule says that we will lose the Kate Goldman Theater. That is the theater that our elementary age kids worship in right now. And so they will be moving to a different room called the Theater in the Ground. Um, It's a little bit harder to get to, but... um, After church, if you would like someone from the volunteer team, from the kids team to show you, uh, they would be happy to do that so you can know where that is. 
Um, and there will be other changes. We'll be having to move groups around in the building a little bit over the next coming months, but we'll kind of keep you updated on that as it comes. We have a plan. Uh, it's just a matter of execution now. So uh, thank you for sticking with us through that. I think the end product is going to be pretty cool, and we can certainly be praying for the Playhouse and that uh, everything goes smoothly and the funds come in and that, that kind of stuff. So uh, we're in a series called Focused, and it's talking about our core values, that we're kind of refocusing or realigning on the things that we're called to as a church. Our mission is to invite people to the way of Jesus, and how we do that is we have these four core values, and you see them on the banners in front of me, so I'm just going to invite you to read these out loud with me. Let's say it out loud together, starting over here. We pursue God, create belonging, do justice, and make disciples. Good. Those are our four core values, and everything we do as a church Happens to, hap happens to take place under one of those four umbrellas. This is kind of how we structure everything that we do. Today we're talking about this second core value, create belonging. Now, the fact is that if you are a follower of Jesus, part of that is that you are now part of the people of God. You are part of a community. Now, we call this community the church, and the church is not determined by a building, the church is not determined by a 501c3 tax status. The church, rather, is the people of God who stand as witnesses to the fact that God is at work in the world. And you don't need a building and you don't need a, a certain status in order to do that. That sentence is important. It's dense. It's full of stuff. So I'm going to say it again. The church is the people of God who stand as witnesses to the fact that God is at work in the world. Another way of putting it is this, we are the ones whose lives remind the world that God has not abandoned the world. That's who we are. That's what we do. That's what we're called to. Our lives, our community should remind the world that God has not abandoned the world. When the world starts to pay attention to the church, they're going to start noticing that we do things a little bit differently, right? And they're going to start to realize that, oh, maybe God is yet at work. That's my theology, uh, theology of the church in a sentence. But here's the truth that we need to understand that's easy to forget. When God comes into your life, he brings 2.4 billion roommates with him. That's how many Christians there are in the world today. Not to mention all the Christians from ages past. You are part of a global, historic people who affirm the scandalous claim that Jesus Christ is Lord of the universe. Now, I believe that the church in our country happens to be facing maybe its biggest challenge yet, right now. I shared this stat last week, but I want to read it again. It says, more people have left the church in the last 25 years than all the new people who became Christians from the first great awakening, the second great awakening, and the Billy Graham crusades combined in just 25 years. That's 40 million people that have left the church in the last 25 years. That's a staggering number, and it will continue. Apart from a move of God, which, by the way, I totally believe couldn't happen. That's why I get out of bed in the morning. That's what I'm praying for. Apart from a move of God, that trend will continue. Now, when we're talking about a move of God, not only do I think it can happen, I think there's a good chance it will. Uh, to be honest, it seems like renewal occurs when culture is at its most bankrupt. And I think that's what we're getting in Western modern civilization. 
When I say culture being bankrupt, what I'm saying is that the, the culture um, is over-promising and under-delivering in terms of what can bring fulfillment in life. And I think we're increasingly getting more and more into that situation where people are realizing that, that the, the assumptions that I've been handed by my culture just don't hold water. So 40, there's 40 million reasons why people have left the church over the last few years. You know, there's been moral failures in leadership, church leadership. You got expressive individualism, which is rampant in our culture and teaches that you don't really need community. Okay, you've got secular disenchantment, which kind of says that, oh, there's nothing beyond just the material realm. And frankly, I've felt these things. I'm sure you have too. If we're honest, we've all felt this before. It's not a surprise for, to us that lots of people are leaving church because it's hard to do what we're doing here, you know? Like we know that it takes commitment. Hopefully you love it. Hopefully you get something out of it. Hopefully moments like what we had here this morning are like, yeah, this is what I need. This is why we do it. But the fact is we felt those reasons before, Right? But my point here is not to analyze why people are leaving the church. Rather, I want to ask what to do about it. How do we create belonging in a world that is increasingly fragmented and isolated? How do we create a thick sense of community when, frankly, we're exhausted all the time? It's not easy to do. But I do think the Bible gives us some guiding light. So here's what I'm suggesting today. I'm suggesting that we need a revolution in discipleship. And that it begins by embracing the church as an alternative community. We need a revolution in discipleship. Look, when there are 40 million people leaving in 25 years, like, we, something's not right. <laughs> like, we need to do something. Like, something's wrong here with how we're going about forming disciples, raising people in the faith. We need a revolution in discipleship. And I think it begins with embracing the church as an alternative community. I'm going uh, to explain that phrase, alternative community, here in a little while. But first, I want to turn to our text. The book of Daniel is the story of the people of God in exile. Now, exile means that you've been uprooted from your context and put in another context. It's usually foreign. It's usually hostile. And that's what Israel was going through, Israel and Judah, the people of God. They once shared an, an outlook with their neighbors. They once shared a, a worldview with those around them. Now they don't. They're the minority. Now, something like this is happening in our world today here where we live. And lots of people smarter than me have drawn this parallel. Of course, you don't want to draw too close of a parallel. It's not like we've been uprooted from our homes and forced to move in a different, to a different land. That's not happened to us, thank goodness. However, we are increasingly becoming, if you're a follower of Jesus, you are increasingly becoming a cognitive minority. A cognitive minority is where your worldview, your assumptions, your ideas about what's good and what's true and what's ethical and what constitutes the good life and what doesn't, all of those things are increasingly at odds with the world and the culture around you, where you no longer share those assumptions with your neighbors, with the place where you work, with your school. That's increasingly the case in our world. A follower of Jesus today has an increasingly difficult challenge of integrating their faith and their public life. It's getting a little bit harder. That's why we need Daniel. Now, throughout history, whenever an empire would conquer another empire, they would have different ways of going about subduing their new subjects. 
Now, some empires would simply slaughter everybody. That's one way to do it. The Assyrians were known for that. They were bloodthirsty and they would just kill everyone. The Babylonians, on the other hand, had a little bit more of a sophisticated approach. And the Babylonians, that's the nation that Israel is exiled into right now in Daniel. And what they would do is that they wouldn't just slaughter everybody. Rather, they would want to erase your cultural identity and replace it with a Babylonian one. And so the way they did this is they would take your best and your brightest from your community and they would bring them into the courts of Babylon, into the center of Babylonian civilization. And the hope is that they could convert those young people into Babylonians. And by doing so, they would then convert the whole community over time. See, this is a process of social deconstruction. That's what's happening in the first chapter of Daniel. It says in verse three, then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. So it's a very simple plan. Hey, we'll start with the young. We'll indoctrinate them into the ways of Babylon. We'll give them new worldview. We'll raise them as Babylonians. And eventually their cultural and religious identity will be erased. So the king, he takes the four best and brightest young men of Israel, of Judah rather. He takes Daniel and Hananiah. He takes Mishael and Azariah. And the first thing he does is he removes their Jewish names. And he replaces their names with Babylonian names. Now it's helpful for us to, under, to understand just how severe this is. We should know what those names mean. So starting with the Jewish names, the, the name Daniel means God has judged. The name Hananiah means God has been gracious. The name Mishael means who is what God is. I think it's like who is like our God or what is there that is equal to God. And Azariah means God has helped. So the thing to notice about these names is that these names are worship. They are theology. They're evangelism. They're discipleship. Just by uttering the name, you're speaking something true about God. You're learning about God simply by calling your friend Daniel on the phone. Like, that's how these names were supposed to function. It has a, it has a teaching, a formative aspect to it. Now let's look at the names that they were given. Daniel becomes Belteshazzar, which means protect the life of the king. Hananiah becomes Shadrach, which means shining Mishael becomes Meshach, which, mean, which references, uh, we don't know exactly what it means, but it's referencing the Persian god Mishra, Mithra. rather. And Azariah becomes Abednego, which means servant of Nebo. Nebo was a Babylonian god. So you see what's happened here. They've been stripped of their names, stripped of their culture, forced to carry names that would have been idolatrous to them. The Babylonians may not have opted for physical violence, which they did, but just not to the extent of some. But make no mistake, this is psychological violence. This is an attempt to erase who you are. Now the story unfolds in a fascinating way. See, not once did Daniel and his friends plan an insurrection against the Babylonians. Not once do they take up arms against their captors. In fact, the opposite happens. They do so well. They get promotions. Daniel is elevated to number two in the kingdom. 
And when some of the king's men are jealous of Daniel, they go to the king and they appeal to his ego and they say, hey, king, why don't you make a law that forbids anyone from worshiping anyone other than you? <laughs> and the king says, ah, I like the sound of that. And so he writes it into law. And of course, they know Daniel worships another god. He worships the God of Israel, Yahweh. And Daniel doesn't budge. He continues to pray three times a day in front of an open window to his God. And of course, he gets him thrown in the lion's den. But neither do his friends waver. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they don't bow down to the statue, the, the idol that the king puts up. But look what happens. By the end of the story, there is this great reversal that has happened. His, this is the, the words of the king of Babylon. He says this, I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. Wow. For he is the living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. This is amazing. Like the ones that tried to conquer are now themselves conquered through the faithfulness of some teenagers. Listen, you got a lot of Bible heroes, you know, you got Abraham and David and, and you know, like all the Bible heroes, they all messed up really bad. Like everybody except Jesus, pretty much. You can make an argument for Mary, right? Like pretty much everyone else in the Bible has some really nasty thing they do. These guys are rock solid though. Like they're just rock stars. But notice here, it's not their faith alone that converts the king. There is a supernatural power with them. God is with them. In fact, they're so sure that God is with them. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're not afraid to go into the furnace for not worshiping the idol. It says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Oh, that's awesome, isn't it? Like, just these guys are hardcore, you know? They're unwavering. Here's my question, though. Where does a Daniel come from? Where does a Shadrach, Meshach, or Abednego come from? How is somebody like this formed? How is such a remarkable person of faith created? Here's my theory. I believe that Daniels don't just happen. They are formed by a community. Daniel and his friends, they step into the Babylonian courts with a set of customs and the language and rituals and liturgies and a worldview that were completely foreign to the Babylonians. In fact, they do these weird things, like they won't eat the meat they're offered. Um, they pray three times towards Jerusalem every day. They refuse to kneel to the idol when literally everyone else is doing it. They have all this pressure tempting them to just fall in, just give in to the customs around you. In fact, you'll be rewarded if you do. You'll be punished if you don't. So why not? Why not just go with it? But they held firm. So how is a Daniel made? How do we create more Daniels? How do we create people that are so rooted in their faith that, that even in exile, they don't waver? Instead of another 40 million people who leave. Here's what I believe. 
In order to do this, here's what we must understand. Our hearts must be shaped more by worship than by the world. Our hearts must be shaped more by worship than by the world. Each one of us here has what is called a conceptual world. A conceptual world is the way that you view life. It's your assumptions about what's possible, about what's ethical, about what's worth doing, about what's not worth doing, about what constitutes a good life, what doesn't. Okay, you have all of this stuff. You don't necessarily think about it, much of it's handed to you. You haven't sat down and mapped out exactly for yourself, okay, what makes a good life, right? What are all the right and wrong things? Like, no, most of this is just absorbed by your upbringing, by the environment that you swim in. And so we have a conceptual world, and it's what makes us who we are. It's what shapes our hearts. Now, tomorrow morning, when you go to work, when you step into your office at Wells Fargo or Drake University or whatever the case is, you are entering a conceptual world, okay? These organizations, they have their own idea of what is worthwhile, what you should pursue, what's a good decision. A set of values and assumptions are at work in these places, Now, whether it's Wells Fargo or Drake or Unity Point or Merrill Middle School, you are entering a place that has assumptions about the world, and we are pressured to enter into that conceptual world ourselves. Now, often it's not that bad. Like a lot of times there's plenty of things that we can affirm in the the different views that we see in our culture. But here's my point. I don't care what they say or think or how much you can affirm, they are nothing like the conceptual world you find in corporate worship. Listen, only in the church do you enter a place that declares that the central truth of the universe is that God is with us. That's not painted on the walls at Wells Fargo, I'm pretty sure. Only in worship are you led to the truth that Jesus was raised from the dead. They're not teaching that at Roosevelt. Only here do you ingest the body and blood of Jesus. That's weird. We don't even know what that is exactly, you know? It's a mystery. It even says it. Only here do you learn to expect miracles. Only in gathering, only in worshiping do we bear witness to the fact that there is a whole different reality that transcends this one. That's the conceptual world that you enter when you come to this place. It's the world that we're supposed to inhabit. It's the world that we're supposed to be anchored to. It's the world that we're, that we're citizens of. We are an alternative community. And what I mean is that we are trying to develop and inhabit a conceptual world that is different than all the others on offer. All the ones that are most popular. We are an alternative community. We are strangers, the Bible says, in a foreign land. There's a ancient text from the second century. So think like the hundreds, all right? Hundreds A.D., And it was written about Christians, describing what Christians are like. It's called the letter to Diognetus. And I don't know who wrote the letter to Diognetus, but here's what Diognetus read when he got it. It says, Christians dwell in their own countries, but simply as sojourners. As citizens, they share in all things with others, and yet endure all things as if foreigners. Every foreign land is to them as their native country, And every land of their birth is a land of strangers. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. What it's saying is that these Christians, like they they pass from one country to the next, and they're all as though they're their home, and they're all as though they're strangers. 
at the same time. They can love that nation that they exist in, the nation of their birth, or they can be transplanted to another place and still love it. But they're also this, this, they're foreigners to it as well. They're home everywhere and they're not home at all because they're citizens of heaven. Look, that is what we're trying to do here. When we invite you to receive prayer down front, we're inviting you to inhabit a different world. When we invite you to sign up for an hour in the prayer room, we're inviting you to step in to a different world. When we, do, when we, when we drone on about the discipleship pathway, we're trying to raise people up to inhabit a different world. When we do Kids Club, we're trying to raise Daniels. We're trying to create Daniels who will remain faithful in exile. That's what the church is for. But listen, it cannot happen if the church is simply an add-on to your life. If it is something that you can opt out of, you must embrace the church as an alternative community. And what that means is you must embrace it more than other things in your life. I'm not saying a totalitarian kind of thing. You can never do anything other than church. That's not what I mean. What I mean is that it's going to require you to inconvenience yourself sometimes for the sake of this community. That's just the truth. And in exile, that becomes more important than ever. My mom and dad have been attending the same church since I was three years old. I'm 39, so they've been going there for 36 years. Can you imagine? Same church for 36 years. None of us have done that. <laughs> Table Church is only four years old. I like guess unless you uh, went to a church prior to this one for 36 years. But uh, this church, um, it's, it's, uh, it's been through its share of difficult times, to put it lightly. I mean... We're talking about stuff that you couldn't make up, some of the trauma that it's gone through. Um, and of course, my parents have been tempted to leave at times, but there's this kind of cool story that my mom shared recently. They have this thing where you can hire a pastor for a year, an, inter an interim pastor. And these pastors are trained to come and just for one year uh, kind of help that church heal from trauma. And so this guy comes for a year, and his point is to help them heal from the past and get ready for the next pastor and hopefully create a good situation for the next pastor to come in. And so one day he has the church members line up according to how long they've been coming to the church. And my parents were the second longest attending people at the church. And uh, I don't know that they were quite expecting that, but it's like, wow, where did the time go, right? They're the second longest attending people at the church. And my, my mom said that um, as, she, as that happened, uh, she just kind of, it's kind of hit her that, you know, those ladies that had mentored her, who had helped her grow in her faith when she was a young mother and first, you know, entered the church with her young children, who poured into her for years, many of whom have now passed on. She thought, well, now it's my turn. So many of those old saints are now gone. And she looked around the room and she could, she could remember when many of those people or families first attended. And another time she says that she sees some of the folks, some of the people in the church who are my age, and she's like, I changed your diaper when you were in the nursery, you know, or taught you in Sunday school or whatever the case is. And she had this line. She said, these people are written on my heart. And you know what? You don't just walk away from that. 
Now, there are legit reasons to leave a church, and maybe they've had them. But we should all want a story like my mom's. We should all want to stand. We should all want to stand in that room and say, these people are written on my heart. You know, um, I have this dream that someday, who do we got out here? I mean, we got, okay, we got Josiah Pettit here. Who's some of the young people we got? We got some Xantings over here. All right. We got Bella. <laughs> got some young people in the room. Okay, I'm, here's my prayer. It's like jo- Josiah, he's like 85 years old one day. And uh, I'm dead and gone. Nobody remembers who I am, but he's still going to table church. He's like, I've been here from the beginning, you know. And they're going to hire this young pastor, 28 years old, right out of seminary or something like that. He's going to come in. He's going to have a vision for the church. He's going to shake things up, get the young people back in the church, whatever. And, and Josiah's going to write that pastor a note. He's like, pastor, I'm praying for you. I'm on your team. I'm in your corner, you know. Like, I want this church to last for, I want it to be 100, I want it to last for 100 years. That should be our goal. We should be trying to create a community here that, that will survive for the next 100 years. That's what we're laying the groundwork for here. So I want to call you to see this place as an alternative community, one that shapes your worldview so that you, you go out into the world and you serve faithfully like Daniel. But here's my question, kind of in closing. My question to you is this. Is this church your TV or your table? Is this church your TV or your table? Your TV serves basically one purpose, entertainment. You watch your TV. (laughs) You don't participate in TV. You watch it when you have time, but you don't shape your life around it. If something else comes up, you don't do it. Especially in the age of streaming shows uh, where you can watch on demand, you don't need to adjust your life around TV anymore. You can get everything you want from the TV without changing your lifestyle at all. You can turn the TV off whenever you want. Your TV doesn't encourage you to engage with anyone. In fact, it discourages it. Of course, we love our TV and we have good times around the TV sometimes, but the TV is not where community is made. It's not where disciples are formed, that's for sure. But your table is different. Your table is something you participate at the table. When you're in community, you adjust your life around the rhythms of the table. But your table remains a fixed point. You can miss meals, of of course, but your table nonetheless remains a fixed point in your schedule. You're nourished at your table. When you're with others, if you live in community, if you live with a family, then, you know, if you're a good family member, then you're contributing to the table. You're not just sitting there expecting someone else to do everything for you. You're either helping prepare or you're helping clean up as soon as you're old enough to do so. At our table, we share highs and lows. We share about our day. We share about life. We pray. We laugh. We get frustrated with each other. But, you know, that's the point. That's community. That's what the church is. If, you want, if we want to create Daniels, this church cannot be a TV. It must be a table. It must be a table. And so we need a revolution in discipleship. And it begins with embracing the church as an alternative community. It starts by pressing against all of the forces causing us to think that we can just do it on our own. This idea of isolated expressive individualism. Uh, It's just like murder on our faith. And it makes absolutely no sense to an ancient person. 
The idea of being a Christian by yourself in your pajamas at home, like that just, it's just not how it works. It's a category error. And so we need to embrace the church as an alternative community so that we can start to form people who can go into Babylon and stand firm as Daniel. And so I want to invite you, if, if this is your TV, to make it your table. Um, we're not called TV church, right? And so one way to do that is to serve, to get plugged in, to get involved. If you're not serving, I want to invite you to do it. You can circle the, on your connection card where it says serve, and uh, we will get, get a hold of you, and we'll talk about what might be the best match for you. Another way that you can do this is that we're going to take communion here today. When we take communion, we're reminded of the fact that we are part of one body, the body of Christ. And as you take these elements, we believe that God is here in a, in a special sort of way. And so as you come, um, would you just be asking, would you be praying for this community? Would you be praying for Table Church um, that God would continue to work, continue to grow this church, continue to reach people through this church and to serve our community? And then we might be able to raise up Daniels here. So we're gonna, we're gonna play a song uh, and you're, just feel free to come at any point. There's a lot of stuff down front, so it might get a little, little crowded, but we're a community, so we can be close. It's all right. So as we play this song, just take a moment. Ask, say to God, search my heart. Is there any unrighteous way in me? Do business with God here, but then come and receive the body and blood, knowing that his goodness and love atones for your sins by what he did on the cross. All right, let's pray. Lord Jesus, I ask that right now in these final moments of this service, that you would dwell richly in our midst and that, Lord, you would bind this community together as one, bind us around this mission of inviting people to your way, to the way of Jesus. And, Lord, may we be a spiritual force that goes out into the community and proclaims your goodness and love. Nourish us now through these elements, I pray in your name. Amen. Why don't you stand as we sing and feel free to come forward for communion at any